Welcome to the weekly GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. We're continuing in our year-long series on Nehemiah called Renovation, Rebuilding for Purpose. This week, Senior Pastor Mark Rader invites us to consider how we respond to God. When we respond to His provision, grace and blessing, are we doing so in a formulaic way, a box-ticking list of tasks or do's and don'ts? Or is our response coming from the heart? and our behaviour a sign of the transformation that he has made in our hearts. Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is actually a selection of verses from Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. So if you'd like to follow along uh, as I go, I'll, I'll announce the verses when I, uh, as I go to them. So we're starting at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. In view of all this, We are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Moving to chapter 10, verse 29 through to 33. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. The last sentence of chapter, uh, verse 39 of chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of our God. Thank you, Greg. Uh, I know that uh, those of you who read the passages in the previous two weeks are probably disappointed that he didn't get to read all those names, Uh, but I thought that that was... Unfair. So you're welcome. Don't say I never did anything for you. Um, But uh, we are continuing. But before we do, let me just open by thanking those of you who were here yesterday for the day of discernment and to thank those of you who may have been on special family duties to make sure one of your family could be here. Really appreciated the sacrifices you made. Those of you who are online, I know that a few of you were here yesterday and are now online. Thank you for being here. And I also know that many of you who were not able to be here let me know beforehand, kind of gave your apologies and assured me that you were praying for the day. Thank you so much for your participation in that way. Uh, We are looking forward to... uh, Uh, kind of what the next steps are, and we'll kind of be letting you know over the next few weeks as we start to kind of pull all that information together. Uh, There was a lot of information. The whole whole platform here was covered in butcher's paper, and the windows had more butcher's paper with post-it notes stuck to it. So there's a lot for us to wade through, but I'm looking forward to that. 
But we are finding ourselves here at the end of this little section in Nehemiah, chapters 8, 9, and 10 that we've been looking at over the last three weeks, and then today being the fourth and final week. And and the focus of these three chapters has actually been on the work of renovation of the heart of the people of Israel. Uh, You know, if you've been following the story along, that the story focuses on the rebuilding of the wall, the renovation of the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, And the wall has been completed, but in chapters 8, 9, and 10, the author stops talking about the wall and focuses instead on the other part of renovation, the work that the people of Israel have to do on their hearts. And it's been fairly encouraging, to say the least. In chapter 8, the people themselves say to Ezra, the priest and the scribe, bring out the book of the law and read it to us. And so Ezra does, and there are a number of Levites who worked with the temple, and they made sure that everyone understood it, and the people were delighted that they understood the law of the Lord. And then we have this um, account of them Uh, following the law and celebrating the festival of tabernacles, which was meant to not only be a harvest festival to give thanks for what God had provided that year, but also to remember the time when they had lived in the wilderness. And so they all set up these temporary shelters of branches and whatnot and lived them for them for a week. And that's kind of interesting. Then they pray, which we looked at last week. And it's a prayer primarily where the people are talking to God, reflecting on God's wonderful faithfulness and kindness to them, even though they had been unfaithful, ending with an appeal to God to act on their behalf again, Uh, an appeal for God to continue to fulfill his purposes, an appeal to God to be faithful and fulfill his promises. And now we come to chapter 10, this agreement of the people. Uh, And it's a fairly significant one. The list of their leaders are all listed, and it's described as a binding agreement. Uh, They talk about taking it with a curse and with an oath, an idea that this is meant to be very, very serious, a commitment that they make to each other. And the heart of their commitment, the essential commitment that they are making, is found in verse 29, where they agree to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of the Lord, Uh, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. So they're committing themselves to doing what the people of God should always have been committing themselves to, right? To obey the law. Uh, And this is a good thing for them to do, but then they go on to draw out attention to three particular aspects of the law that they really, really want to pay attention to. So while they want to obey the whole law, they want to draw their attention to three areas. You may have picked them up. They're not going to intermarry, uh, so they're not going to allow their daughters to marry with the foreign nations around them or vice versa. They're going to be very careful about Sabbath regulations, particularly around buying and selling on the Sabbath and then the forgiving of debts on the Sabbath. And then there's a whole lot, and we didn't even read all of it, a whole bunch of stuff about the practical resourcing of the temple. Uh, There's discussion about the wood roster for the altars, and there's talk about the first fruits, and there's talk about the tithes, and there's talk about this third of a shekel and a whole bunch of things that they need to work through. And what I want to take some time to do today is to consider these three focuses, these three things that they draw out, and consider the implications and applications for us. Because I think there's actually something really quite significant for us to do, and there's something significant for us to avoid. One of the things you need to be aware of whenever you read particularly Old Testament narratives 
Whenever you're encountering a narrative is most of the time the, the narrator is describing action for us rather than prescribing action for us. In other words, most of the time, we are meant to do the work of trying to figure out whether the activity and the example given to us is something that we should follow or something that we should not follow. Now, sometimes it's really obvious, right? Uh, When David commits adultery and then has the husband murdered, I don't know anybody who said, I think that we're meant to do that because it's in the Bible. Ron, I'm pretty sure no one goes down that track. We kind of get it. As a description, it's a description of wickedness and evil and unfaithfulness, and we can kind of go on and on. A little bit later in that story, however, when the prophet Nathan confronts David about his sin, we have a good example, don't we? Because he doesn't get defensive, he doesn't deny it, he doesn't rationalize it. Instead, he repents wholeheartedly. And again, we look at that example and we say, that is an example that we should follow. When we are confronted with our sin, when we are presented with our failure, our response should not be to deny it or to justify it or to rationalize it. We should be like David. But there are lots of stories in Scripture where there's a little both ways. Well, there's some elements of the story where we kind of go, that's a good thing for us to follow. And some elements where we're like, I'm not so sure. And this agreement of the people, I think, contains a little bit both ways. There's things for us to take up and to apply in our own lives because they are valuable lessons and principles for us. And there are some things for us to be aware of that we may want to be careful about implementing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a look at those three ideas uh, and talk about, first of all, the things that we ought to follow. And the first thing that I think is, that's worth drawing our attention to is their motivation for this. If you're following along, I mean, this is one of the problems with reading the Bible in bits, right? You kind of forget the, the flow of events. But they have just prayed this heartfelt prayer. Oh, Lord, you are faithful. You've always been faithful. You always fulfill your promises. And when we have not been faithful, you are always gracious and always compassionate. And it ends with this appeal. We are in great distress. Would you do something on our behalf? Immediately afterwards, in view of all this, in view of your great faithfulness, In view of your great compassion, we are now going to obey the law, which could sound a little bit like they are trying to earn God's favor, doesn't it? But I think in context, there's actually something really powerful happening here. This is how it's supposed to work. Because the people's agreement, the commitment one to another to obey the law, is made as a response to what God has done for them already. I mean, they've just recounted it. And they've been confronted and presented with the faithfulness of God. And their response is to respond in obedience, which is exactly how it ought to be. It would be wrong if the agreement came before the prayer, right? If they started by saying... Oh, Lord, we commit to follow your law, and in view of our obedience, would you act on our behalf? That puts the cart before the horse, right? But what we have here is this wonderful example 
of the people responding to God's faithfulness, his character, his grace, his compassion, and saying, because of what you have done, we are going to aim to be faithful. That is an example we're following. Likewise, I think there are principles in the three areas that the, uh, the, the people decide to focus on that are valuable for us. Right? The, uh, the prohibitions against intermarriage, uh, the decisions around the Sabbath, uh, and the practical resourcing of the temple. Uh, in the first two in particular, there is a principle of holiness or of separation. Uh, to be holy does have to do with moral purity, but its kind of basic meaning is for something to be set apart. So there were instruments that were used, <clears throat> not musical instruments, but bowls and cups and uh, ladles and those sorts of things that were holy in the temple. And they weren't holy because they were morally pure. They were holy because they were set apart for a particular specific task. You probably have some holy implements in your house. The, the silverware that only comes out on special occasions. Next time you have it, bring it out and say, this is holy, right? You probably have some holy things that are separated because you've forgotten you own them and they're at the back of a cupboard, but that's a different kind of holiness altogether. Right? So the people of Israel were meant to be separated. They were meant to be set apart for a purpose. And the decision that they make here to promise not to give their daughters in marriage or to take the daughters of the foreign nations for their sons is essentially an attempt to be holy. Now, the laws in the Old Testament regarding intermarriage were not primarily about ethnic or cultural components, but about the religious and spiritual ones. So there are a number of places in the law where the people of Israel, who are still about to go into the land of Canaan, are warned when they enter in, do not intermarry. And the reason is, if you do, they will lead you into idolatry. And there are some famous examples of how that happens in the Old Testament. One of the great examples is Jezebel, the Sidonian princess who is married by Ahab, the king of Israel and leads not only Ahab, but the entire nation astray. Or Solomon and his many, many wives from many, many countries who lead his heart astray. And so the, the principle behind this commitment is to be spiritually, religiously set apart, recognizing that their purpose as the people of God was to live a distinct life. That's true also in the Sabbath regulations. We won't buy or sell on the Sabbath, nor will we ignore the seventh year. So every seventh year, if you were a farmer, you were to leave your land fallow. It was an act of trust. The Sabbath wasn't just a day off. The Sabbath was an opportunity to actively demonstrate your trust in God. That you did not have to do the work today because it would be okay. And every seventh year, you were to let the land lie fallow, plant nothing on it, in the trust that God would provide whatever just grew over the course of the year, that what you had stored up would be sufficient, and that God would sustain you through that entire year. An act of trust. Likewise, the forgiving of debts. An act of trust. That I don't need 
the money that I lent you to come back to me, God will look after me. The commitment to a separate life, a holy life, is, a, is something that's admirable. It's something that I think we can look at and say, how do we make sure that we are not, shall I say, marrying into the culture and allowing it to influence us in negative ways? Likewise, when we turn to the emphasis on the practical resources of the temple, it's a, it's a fascinating read, Right? Uh, the wood roster, every family was on a wood roster, so how's, how's that for something new, right? Uh, you're on the wood roster to make sure we got fire for the, the altar, and there's the first fruits, and there's the tithes and the offerings. There's like all sorts of stuff that's going on, really pragmatic. There's some government's details, governance details about how the money's to be collected and all of those sorts of things. It's all in there. Uh, but this is a reminder as well, in terms of a principle, of their purpose in the world. Because the temple was not just a place of worship. It was a symbol in the land of God's presence in the world. And God's presence was not just there to be God's presence, but it was also a reminder of his purpose. We looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago, but in Isaiah chapter 2, we have this kind of symbolic aspect or this symbolic description of the temple. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks about the mountain of the Lord. In the last days, Isaiah 2 verse 2, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. This is less about some miraculous kind of geographical raising up of the temple, but more about the importance of the temple in world order. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The result of God's presence in the world and the temple as that representation is peace. It is the fulfillment of God's purposes in the world. And a commitment of the people of Israel to supporting the work of the temple, the very practical nuts and bolts, is a reminder of the purpose that they had been given. And all of these things are admirable, right? If you take nothing else away from this morning apart from the fact that, you know what, I should be, my life should be a response to God's grace in my life rather than me trying to earn my salvation, that would probably be enough for me if you left with that. If you walked away saying, you know what, it's important for us as the people of God to be distinct in our practices and in our behaviors, and is my life distinct enough from the world in which I live, that would be a worthwhile application for you to take away as well. Are we living the way in which God has purposed for us to live in the world? That would be worthwhile too. These are elements of this agreement that I think we should commit to. But there is another part here that I think we have to be careful of. And essentially what it comes down to is that there is here a focus on the activity and not a focus on on the heart. There is a focus on the activity, but not a focus on the heart. And that leads to some really 
troubling outcomes. So for instance, the reference to not giving our daughters in marriage to the peoples around or taking their daughters for our sons is a big deal in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, And we have examples, as I've already mentioned, of, you know, where it goes bad, where Solomon's wives led his heart astray, where Jezebel led Ahab away. And there would have been examples of the reverse as well, of, of, of daughters being led astray by foreign sons. But at the end of Ezra, when Ezra finds out that many of the Israelites have married other people from the surrounding nations, their solution is for every single example of intermarriage to divorce their wives and send their wives and children away. It's a description where we kind of go, um, I don't know. Because while there are examples of the Jezebels, there are also examples of the Ruths a Moabite. And we all know what the Moabites are like, don't we? You can't trust them. Farther you can kick them. We all know what's Ruth, what Ruth's going to do when she meets Boaz, right? Like, it's just going to go pear-shaped because we all know what Moabites are like. Except Ruth is not much like a Moabite, is she? In fact, she's very much like kind of an ideal Israelite. When she says to her mother-in-law, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And Ruth finds her way into the genealogy of David and therefore of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And she fits the wider pattern of God's plans to be a blessing to all the nations, to incorporate all the nations into the world. And so here we have this example of the people wanting to recognize that they are separate, wanting to realize that they are holy, wanting that to be reflected in their lives, and yet they have made a decision that has no heart in it. Regardless of whether you married a Jezebel or a Ruth, they're all to go. The Sabbath regulations. We don't see it played out here, but by the time you get to Jesus' day, the Sabbath has become a bit of an issue, hasn't it? A regulation without heart. In Mark chapter 3, the religious leaders brought a man with a shriveled hand to a church service, a synagogue gathering that Jesus was at. And then they watched to see what he would do. And the Greek term for watched is not a casual observation, but a surveillance for the purposes of getting them. And when Jesus sees this man with a shriveled hand, he says, come into the center here and stretch out your hand. And when he is healed, the religious leaders immediately go out and plot Jesus' death. What's gone wrong? What's gone wrong with that? Where the commitment to be a people marked by trust, that we will trust the Lord's provision for us, that we will be a people who will rest, that we'll be a people who will forgive debts, that we'll be a people who realize and recognize God's provision. What has gone so wrong 
that to heal someone on the Sabbath becomes worthy of death. It is a commitment that we would applaud that is without heart. Which brings us to the practical resourcing of the temple. Because it's weird. It's actually really weird. Because unlike the first two, where the Sabbaths were ignored by the people of Israel and where they continually bought into and married into the culture with devastating consequences, the temple always did a roaring trade. The temple was always fine. It always had wood. They always had sacrifices. They always had the offerings. The priests were fine. The prophets were fine. The Levites were fine. You know what the problem was for the people of Israel in relationship to the temple? It was that they were focused on the stuff of ministry rather than the heart of worship. In fact, that's the problem all the way through. And I'm not talking about the heart of worship in the sense of worship and songs of praise and prayer and hearing the word and those sorts of things. I'm talking about a life of worship. And a life of worship is one where we are bringing our lives, our values, our priorities, our goals, our resources into alignment with the one that we worship. That is a life of worship. Many people in our society, perhaps even us, have allowed money to become idolatrous. Not because we have little shrines to it in our homes and play Pink Floyd's version of money before we look at it and we pray to it and burn little things to it. Not because of any of that, but because we have slowly allowed our lives, our priorities, our values, our goals, our resources to become aligned with the power and influence of wealth. The people of Israel always had the temple buzzing. The temple always worked. But there was no alignment of their values, priorities, resources, or goals with the one they worshipped. It's why Samuel can say to King Saul, who has justified his disobedience with the cover of worship, he can say, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's why Jeremiah could go into the temple courtyards and say to the people who were gathered, who were worshipping the Lord, and say to them, you are treating this place like a robber's den. Treat this like your hideout where you're safe for your next scheme. But there is no faithfulness. There is no alignment. There is no syncretity. There's no rhythm that matches the covenant of God. You are trusting, he says, in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. It's why Amos can speak these words on behalf of God. I hate, I despise your festivals. These are the festivals that God had commanded them to perform. Why did he hate them? Because they were all right from the perspective of the stuff of ministry, but there was no alignment. In the book of Nehemiah, there are two acts of renovation, the wall and the heart. When we return a little bit later in the year to the end of the story, we find that the wall was completed. It was done. They dedicate it. They march around on top of it. It's done. 
The renovation of the heart has no corresponding happy ending. Their commitment, which in many ways is so exemplary for us, failed to take into account a heart of worship. So yesterday, we completed the third stage of a four-stage process of discernment, trying to figure out what it is that God is inviting us into. We've thought about who we are and we've prayed for guidance. We've made submissions to the discernment group who have carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully identified a handful of areas where they have believed that God is leading us to think. We've been praying for the last 40 days around that space. We met yesterday and filled the platform with stuff and ideas. And before we get to our AGM in, in, in December, we will have come up with a plan, goals and projects, things for next year and the year after that. Be very exciting. And in many ways, I would hope, quite exemplary. Can you guess where I'm going with this? Because if all we do is complete a five-year plan and ignore the work of the heart, What's the point? Well, what's the point? I don't want to be known as the church that has the best programs, the greatest events, the most wonderful expressions of community, the greatest systems and processes, the most volunteers. I don't care. If we are not a church, a community of faith that is about the hard work of worship, I don't want any of that stuff. Because it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Well-intentioned or not, it's not what we're called to. We're called to be men and women, families, a community, where our lives are ever more in alignment with the plans and the purposes of God. And I'm excited about what we're doing. I'm excited about the process. I'm looking forward to the planning. I am. I hope you are too. I hope we get to that AGM in December and go, yes, this is God's leading for us. Let's get behind this. That's what I all hope for. But I'm aware that what we have here is an example of a people committing to good things but leaving out a commitment to the work of the heart. And I don't want us to do that. I don't want us to do that. Our purpose is to align ourselves, our values, our priorities, our strategies, our resources, to the plans and purposes of God the Father, who is seeking to restore and renew everything in Christ Jesus. 
through the enabling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's it. So I leave you with this challenge as it sits with me. Let us do the work of a heart of worship. Let us bring our lives ever more into alignment with the rhythm of God's work. That we might be his people in the world and in this community. That. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me. They're going to lead us in a song reflecting on the goodness of God, which is a good place to start with our commitment to the heart because this cannot be a response to a sermon. It can't be a response to or a desire to kind of get God to do something, but it, be, it's, it marks the very beginning of why we would do this in the first place. It's God's goodness to us. It's God's faithfulness to us that encourages and spurs us on to a life of alignment and to worship and to ministry and to service and to mission in everything that we do and everywhere that we go. This is what we're on about. So I'm going to invite you to stand right now. I want to pray for us. Uh, There's an opportunity as well. It's been a long time since we've done it this way, prior to COVID, really. But during this last song, there'll be a couple of us just up the front. If you'd like to pray about something, or for something, or for someone, we'd love to pray with you, both during this last song and then kind of after the service. But do take advantage of that as an opportunity for us to, well, align our hearts together. Would you pray with me as we prepare? Heavenly Father, thank you that you've invited us into your plans and purposes to restore the world in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have given us not only this grand call, but you've also given to us your Holy Spirit. And you've given us one another so that we can make commitments like the people of Israel did in Nehemiah. Commitments to respond to your grace by seeking to be people who are separate and distinct in the way in which we live, who are people who trust you, and look to your provision, that we are people who look for the practical resourcing of your purposes in the world. But I pray that in all of that, that we would not neglect the heart. It is so easy for us to focus on things, to become legalistic, to to start talking about the activity rather than the source of that. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our lives, convicting us of where we need to align our lives more closely with you, drawing us ever more closely into alignment with your purposes and values, that we might be a people of worship. And that as we commit ourselves to that end, that we would see you move in our lives, and we would see you move in the lives of our families and the lives of our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors. That we would indeed see lives changed by Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. We pray that you can know the transformation that comes from life with Jesus and hope that this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God 
and that it's blessed your life today. Thanks for listening.